Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and I'm out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose, California with some friends, with a lot of friends, but at the moment I have three, Sally Kempton, Igor Kufayev, and Manas Kafatos. And the reason I assembled this little conversation that we're about to have is that a question always rumbles around in my brain, which is, I'll articulate it as best as possible, if consciousness is the ultimate reality, and if there is an ultimate reality, then everything must actually be that reality. If we take this glass and we start to go more and more microscopically, we get down to the point at which there is no glass, and if we go far enough, we get down to the point at which what we find is what we find if we do that with anything in creation. So is there really a glass or is there only that which we find when we get right down to the real nitty-gritty? And if that is the case, then how do glasses and tables and palm trees and buildings and people appear? Is it an illusion that we're seeing all these things? So anyway, I could elaborate on that, but I got to talking with Igor about this and he said, well, you know, Kashmir Shaivism addresses this very beautifully and perhaps we could have a little panel discussion when we get out there in which we'll discuss this in light of or with reference to Kashmir Shaivism. And so these three panelists came to mind. Sally and Menas were both students of Swami Muktananda and I believe that Kashmir Shaivism was very much the foundation of his tradition and Igor was not but is somewhat of an expert in that field as well so I, I thought it would be very interesting to have this conversation and it's not something that was being done within the context of the formal conference so we just set it up on on the side so I'd like to just introduce the guests or actually I think I'll have you guys introduce yourselves just briefly because that'll be more effective than my introducing you why don't we do that starting with Sally I'm Sally Kempton, and I'm a spiritual teacher. Uh, I'm a writer. I've written a couple of books on meditation and on Shakti. I was a longtime student of Swami Muktananda, who actually introduced me to Kashmir Shaivism in, 19, in the very early 1970s. And before, let's see, before that, I was a journalist. I teach workshops, retreats, uh, teleclasses in what I call non-dual contemplative devotional tantra because the, the tradition that I was trained in and that I relate to is kind of combines uh, the understanding of non-duality with, with the recognition of the gift of devotion and the understanding that love, devotion is an aspect of shakti which is an aspect of reality which is one of the heart teachings of Keshe Shaivism. You are? Uh, I'm Shiva. I'm Shiva. <laughs> I'm Igor Kufayev. I was born in Uzbekistan. And essentially, um, I was an artist uh, as far back as I can remember myself. Um, quite a few things have happened in between, uh, realizing that I'm that, and one without the second. And, but to give like a kind of a little bit more of uh, a linear perspective, uh, I've been studying art and pursuing it all my life, where the kind of uh, drive was realized that beneath that, the drive for art was actually very, very much a powerful energetic movement within that was kind of like eager to express itself. As soon as I realized that, I've realized that art is actually secondary, but what is primal is that drive for self-actualization. 
So um, in the meantime, of course, I did a lot of studies and I was at some point a uh, um, student at St. Petersburg Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, in my uh, early 20s, I moved to Warsaw, which was my first kind of formative years as an independent artist. And uh, since 1991, I was a resident of London and pursued artistic career, uh, career in arts as a painter until a powerful transformation took place around, around my mid-30s, which essentially made me realize that uh, there is nothing to pursue other than that which I am already as an embodied being. So in no time, which took quite a few years, I find myself teaching and essentially sharing this knowledge. So that's pretty much Good. the story. Thanks. Menas? Thank you for the invitation. Minas Kafatos, um, I'm a quantum physicist, uh, teaching at uh, Chapman University and, and um, other places, but in any case, have been uh, a student uh, of Shavings since 1980 when I met uh, Baba Mkhananda in South Oldsbury, New York, in fact, I remember, I remember Sally in those days. And um, certainly in 1980, uh, a big transformation took place. and. Um, since then, my life has changed quite a lot. I can see the dramatic and the subtle changes. The subtle changes are actually perhaps even more profound. I'm also an artist. I started uh, art in Greece. Right. But uh, 14 years old, I, said, uh, I told my dad, you know, art is so easy for me, I would like to go to science. So I decided to go into astrophysics first and then eventually into quantum physics. The exciting part now is that we have actually mathematical ways, mathematical tools to get us as close as possible to the top five tattvas. I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that. But realize that mathematics itself comes from uh, the underlying sea of consciousness. But it is the most fundamental way to get as close as possible to universal consciousness. And uh, we can talk a bit more about uh, some of the specifics of these uh, steps of, of uh, transformation in human uh, lives and also how the universal shakti gives rise to the universe. Yeah, I think you were addressing that in your talk last <laughs> night at the conference yeah. and um, you were saying something along the lines of what I was talking about with the glass and you used the word veiling. So I got the understanding from listening to you that there's some sort of veiling process that occurs in order for apparent forms to arise. Correct. Um, and again, from quantum physics today, we know that Non-locality is a fundamental property of the universe. It's, in fact, it is perhaps the most fundamental property of the universe. Um, I describe it in the non-local universe, which, as you know, it's one of my books. So if that's the case, and we're entangled, which is the theme of this conference here, then how come a glass appears as a glass, and, uh, you know, Sally and Igor and you and myself look as separate beings? Something must happen, and uh, the, uh, the great divide text all of them, but uh, let's say the Pratinya Venetian Hridayam, which is the text of uh, self-recognition written by Kshamaraja, sort of actually gives the steps of how uh, universal consciousness becomes the bound soul, let's put it that way, the individual self. And uh, crucial to that is the principle of veiling, which um, in Sanskrit is called Maya, and it's uh, a term that sometimes is quite misunderstood because Maya herself is misunderstood. It's really the great power of the Lord to veil herself or veil himself, of 
course the Lord is not, uh, does not have a gender. And appear as multiplicity of uh, universes and objects. The interesting thing now is that quantum theory, something that has come up lately, is that, um, and this is why the mathematics is important, we find that um, we have a similar concept that we call veil non-locality. And Subhash Kak, you may know him, he's also, uh, he's actually from Kashmir himself, mm -hmm. he knows Subhash Shavis quite a bit. And I have written a couple of articles. And basically there we look at this principle of veiling purely from the point of view of quantum physics. And it seems that general relativity and quantum theory come together. And the consciousness seems to be an important part of that. Without it, veiling does not make any sense. And so it's quite exciting because now perhaps we have a way to talk about the, the unification of physics from the point of view of this veiling, which is analog to what the uh, great uh, Shaivite masters who were calling the Maya, and of course the Vedantists were called Maya. Do either of you want to comment on that? Yeah. Um, well, I would say one of the earmarks, hallmarks of Shaivism, of Kashmir Shaivism, of non-dual Shaivism, as opposed to non-dual Vedanta, right. which is, of course, is very similar to it, is the understanding about Maya, about the veiling power. So in Vedanta, where the, where the teaching is that ultimate reality is, is the only tr real truth and that the world is illusion, Maya is considered this kind of mistake or the, the straw in the glass that makes us think that, that the water is two when actually it's one. Whereas in Kashmir Shaivism, Maya is seen as a level of manifestation of Shakti, which is which is the, the power aspect of the ultimate reality, that really she manifests as Maya in order to veil unity so as to play in manifestation. And the sort of essential thing about tantric Shaivism is this understanding that the world is real, even though it dissolves in certain states of consciousness, because Shakti, the, the love, bliss, energy of the divine is present in every particle. So as you were saying last night, it's empty and it's also full. It's, it's without any form, without ultimate reality, and yet it is totally full of ultimate reality. And that's the Shaivism is really, I think, the only tradition that really explains this, that gives you permission, so to speak, to be a serious spiritual seeker and fully in love with the physical world, which is why I think it yeah. works so well with quantum physics. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I may add what Sally said, a precisely point, and in terms of, of course, uh, I believe when, when you start getting deeper into Shankara, Shankaracharya's uh, Advaita yeah. Vedanta, uh, then you begin to see that actually he was also talking about the same thing. He was. He was. He was. But then he was misunderstood, and this is the problem with the, with the wars. This is the problem with uh, what, again, the great Shaivite uh, uh, masters call the, the limitation, the limiting uh, power of the wars, uh, the Madhika, Madhika Shakti. And of course, that is the, that's what makes our human, as us as human beings, and we get bound by, by our minds and by our own words. And so, ultimately, Vedanta and Shaivism are not really opposite, but Shaivism is much more down to earth in terms of everyday life, in terms of science. That's why we scientists really tend to gravitate towards it, because um, it accepts the world as real, rather than what the, interpret the interpretation of some of, um, of the Advaita Vedantic uh, teachings ended up saying that the world is not real. And then, of course, the reaction of scientists is, what do you mean it's not real? Right. Then you're mm. denying science. 
So rather than have to explain all of that, that that's not really what Shankara meant, then you know, just yeah. just go with science. Well, as <laughs> as human beings, we have a certain sensory capacity or, or a certain range within which we can perceive, right? You know, we don't perceive magnetic fields, we don't perceive ultraviolet, we perceive within a certain range. And also, in terms of macroscopic and microscopic, we have certain capacity to perceive. Now, if, let's say, I had superpowers and could perceive more and more microscopically what this glass really is, then at a certain point there wouldn't be glass, at a certain point there wouldn't be molecules, at a certain point there wouldn't be atoms. As I go deeper and deeper, those you know, more manifest levels would no longer be found and at a certain point there wouldn't be anything that could be called a thing right i mean are, are, are you with me so far i'm not speaking incorrectly no, no, in terms in terms right. of physics no. and so you know just because i have limited perceptual capacity as a human being it seems like i see this glass as a glass because i have limited perceptual abilities if i had super power perceptual abilities I could choose to see it as a glass, but I could also zoom right down and see it as, as nothing, uh, not see it at all, because it wouldn't be there. So I guess what I'm getting at is it, it almost would seem that the world appears because of the restriction in our perceptual and cognitive ability to a very kind of limited band of possibilities. And um, Yes, um, basically what you're saying is the veiling of Maya. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, we take particular forms, particular forms of existence, even though we are this universal sea of consciousness. We are product of evolution, but we are also evolved, we are also the guiders, the guiding principles of evolution ourselves. So in terms of the glass, and, and you said if you look at really deep down, it will dissolve. It will dissolve probably into super strings at some point, and then what's beyond super strings? Well, in Shaivism, they, it's a doctrine also of spanda, which means vibration. But the, the vibration of, um, in um, the Shaivite uh, underlying consciousness is not quite the same thing as the field theory. It's not quite the same thing as quantum field theory. Because there, the vibration of the quantum field, you have a field and vibrate. Even though it's not material in the usual sense, there's still something there. In the case of um, these great monistic systems, consciousness itself has the spandard principle, the principle of vibration. But it is a subtle movement. And it is a subtle movement that becomes eventually bigger. And when it gets filtered, and in fact, some great teachings that talk about uh, Maya or the, or the veiling principle as a, essentially like a prism, which uh, takes the white light mm. and makes it into many colors. And in fact, if you look at the tatvas, you will see that at some point, the rays, which are different tatvas, are really coming from, let's say, the ego most of them come from Digo, then the analogy is there, but it's, it's an analogy. So it will dissolve ultimately into some sort of vibration of universal consciousness. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing, but you did much better in terms of scientific implications. Yeah. Isn't, wasn't it uh, Albert Einstein who was particularly chuffed about actually realization, which he considered to be more important than what he is known for, is that realization that a light is both exhibits both qualities. Light is both particles yes. and waves. So when Rick was saying the example with the glass, I think it's very important to also understand that the example of zooming in and trying to kind of like go to the bottom or like let's say the finest layer of what this reality uh, is made of 
it's still kind of approaching it a little bit from the old paradigm. Not necessarily that you are coming from that, but that kind of zooming in. Because what really quantum uh, science gives us is understanding that this glass exists here, both as the possibility of consciousness which has collapsed into a particular object in time, in space-time, and it simultaneously also exists as a possibility on a wavelength. And this is where we enter, or where science overlaps with very deep, profound experiences known as yogic experiences, in quotes unquote. And earlier, when you mentioned the science of matrika, which is very, very unique to Kashmir Shaivism. Science of what? Matrika. Matrika. Matrika, which is the science of the matrix. Sometimes it's called as the little mother. That literally, it's that plethora that contains absolutely everything, absolutely everything in its pure potentiality. It's a very profound realization when one actually experiences it directly. But in terms of sort of the, some of the listeners perhaps will be kind of correlate this, I would like to mention something for which Kashmir Shaivism stands unique in terms of the importance of the sound, right? Like this, right. the whole... Well, tantra in general. Yeah, and tantra that, in general, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, 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 that kind of the emission of sound, or the, the sea, the ocean of sound. Yeah. And the uniqueness also here is with the understanding that the Sanskrit, through which the knowledge of Kashmir Shaivism operates, or being conveyed, related, is based on the, not that this is a very, very precise correlation between sound and form, between the essence and form, in other words. This is something that is encapsulated in the term Nama Rupa, but like that kind of the field of all potentialities, right, that kind of right. the field, the quantum field, we can, we can say that it's a continuum. So that sound, the first letter of the alphabet of the Sanskrit alphabet is A. Ah. Ah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A, like in, ah. For the, yeah. For the, like in terms of how it is written. Yeah. And uh, the, so the sound that is produced is an uninterrupted sound. Ah. Uh, right? Yeah. So there's the letter uh, R, it actually literally exemplifies that uninterrupted continuum. But soon, soon, as it collapses into the next one, which is a ka or ksa, sometimes known as like Mahesh Mahesh Yogi, for instance, elaborated on it very beautifully, where for me personally, it was a beautiful reconciliation and deep understanding of the teaching that existed in Kashmir Shaivism and what Mahesh Mahesh Yogi brought through his science of creative intelligence, where that literally, that Vedic verse, Richo Akshare Paramev Yaman, remember that? Mm -hmm. That the one whose, whose vision is open to that field of all potentialities within the gap between the sounds, to him only the reality is known, not the one who repeats the Vedas, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is literally richo ak share, this from ah, an uninterrupted continuum, to k, where the sound collapses, collapses from wavelength into something particular. In other words, from that a to ka, right? That literally, literally, is the mystery. This is where the mystery has been pointed towards. And I find it terribly exciting because it gives that visceral, visceral understanding of how actually the ultimate reality, which is a substratum of all that exists, also simultaneously expresses itself as the infinitude of points of collapse. Because it collapses 
in point in time, but it collapses in infinity, in infinitude of waves of possibilities. In other words, it's like there's no end to that collapse and there's no end to that sound of that open sound. So, the science of matter. So, Igor was speaking about matraka, which is usually translated as little mother or ununderstood mother. What matraka is, is um, the energy within sound, and it's you know, in, in this theory that the world is created out of vibration, out of, out of a deep, very, very subtle vibration called spanda that then becomes more and more concretized. Where it ends up with us, where we end up with it, is language. Because matrika, as we know it, is actually, it's the veiling power within language. So, and I, wanted, I just was thinking of an event that happened to a friend of mine many years ago. She was in a car accident. And as you know, car accidents are sometimes the triggers for profound experiences of expansion. So she was thrown out of the car on 101 and landed in the median strip and found herself in this utterly vast plane where there were no forms. She was in a state of complete ecstasy. She didn't know her name or who she was. There was certainly no pain. And Little by little, as she tells it, after an, infinite, an infinity of time, suddenly these, this trickle of words began to come in her mind, and it went like this. I hope they don't think it was my fault. And with, as soon as those words arose, she was back in her body, in pain, you know, worrying about the outcome of her accident. And she said, and I, I expe I've experienced this myself, that this was the moment when she understood the veiling power of language. That without it, reality is infinite possibility. As soon as we begin to create names and thoughts and definitions, then reality is particularized and limited and defined. And that's, you know, matraka shakti, as it's called, the, the power behind language, the power within language, is actually the form of the shakti aspect, the energy aspect of the divine that, that cuts things constantly into particles and then constantly allows the unveiling to occur so that we can experience wholeness. And it's, it's really a, it's a constant rhythmic movement. And it's very beautiful because yeah. obviously that accident was a very beautiful example yeah. of direct experience of that very visceral experience as I can imagine. Yeah. And Kashmir Shaivism is very, very specific and goes into a great depth to explain how the language veils reality, yeah. isn't it? And there is obviously this profound science of the progressive manifestation of sound through its four stages, yeah. from para to Pashyanti to Madhyama to the Vaikari, how it actually literally comes from that level of unmanifested level of pure potentiality, whatever you might, might call it, where Shiva is united with Shakti and indistinguishable right. from the level of power. And then how it is gradually being manifested through its progressively more, let's say, contracted state until it is being expressed as the thought yeah. or as the speech. And, and simultaneously. And simultaneously as, as everything, yeah. absolutely. Because yeah. the language is here to be understood, not just what we speak orally, but language which literally collapses the wave into something particular, into particles. One of the teachings of Shaivism that I find really difficult to understand in my normal state of consciousness is that, that reality is constantly being recreated in fractional seconds. So that, it, that in between any thought, in between any breath, in between 
any perception, the whole universe collapses back into its non-dual state, into its non-dual form. And we're sort of, we're watching a, a 24 frame per second movie that is actually a series of stills, with stillness between them. This is a, a realization that I actually have to be in what we normally call an altered state to really grasp because it's so, you know, intuitively ungraspable in our, in our ordinary reality. And I think that's the thing that, about physics that's, that people like Rick are so fascinated by because there is actually a physical world explanation of these subtle, subtle realities that almost to a modern materialist mind, like all of us have, mm -hmm. kind of explains it in a way we can say, okay, this is a physical thing as well as being this you know, infinitely subtle reality that's only graspable in high states of meditation and realization. Somebody can do the math. Yeah. It's kind of challenges as well that accepted view of creation. Yes, it mm. does. Creation, from that perspective, creation never took place. Yeah. And that's really the, the true depth of understanding of the true permanence of pure awareness of the Shiva. Yeah. And so that, that w kind of manifestation and the withdrawal, it doesn't happen only in terms of pralaya, not, not right. only in terms of that Vedic, tantric concept of time. Right. But it is like this continuum yeah. that literally, literally, it has no beginning and no end, like a stream of consciousness, what, what I personally like that reference as the stream of consciousness which simply streams within itself right. for yeah. its own sake. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and infinitely self-recursive. I'm wondering if it would be useful if we kind of did a textbook explanation of how Kashmir Shaivism sees the world. Sure. Is that is I, that is I that have a useful? couple of questions based yeah. on what you guys were just saying. Should I ask those now, sure. or do you want to do your textbook explanation? Um, well, I, <laughs> well, why don't you I just up just kind of get the term. Just yeah. so we get the. Well, maybe my I can ask my questions and then you can include sure. the answers in your textbook sure. explanation. One is, you know, you were speaking as though, just now, language is responsible for the manifestation of creation. And obviously people are going to think, well, wait a minute. If they think of language in the ordinary human sense, uh, the universe was around for probably billions of years before there were any beings who had who devised languages. And yet, so manifestation had already happened. So that question needs to be addressed. And the second thing, what you were just saying about the collapse of the universe in, in micro moments in between. Right. Are you saying that that happens for each observer, or are you saying that somehow the entire universe does that in some kind of universal way? And third question to throw in is just that there's obviously a, a consistency between observers. We all see this table with three glasses on it, and if somebody else comes into the room who hasn't been here today, they'll see the table with three glasses on it. So it seems that there's a kind of a template for reality that goes far beyond any individual's perspective on it, and that individuals just sort of tune in on to whatever extent they can. So any notion that somehow we each individually in every moment create the universe would seem to fly in the face of that point. I'd like to answer that sure. question first, uh -huh. because Shaiva, Shaivism is really interesting in that there is a creator in Shaivism. In other words, reality is uh, personified in a certain sense. And the, the basic teaching is that all of this is a manifestation inside one great mind. And that one great mind has its scenes. I'm not one with that mind, at least not at this moment. <laughs> so I can only speak from hearsay. And yet you are. And yet I am, exactly. 
So all of this is occurring inside one mind, and, and that's the mystery that both Hamid and Menas were talking about last night, which is that it's all inside one mind. And that mind, it's like if you go in enough, you'll go out and become one with that mind. But all of our atomic minds are aspects of that one mind, which is why there's one reality that we all see. So we're like little yeah. sense yeah. organs of, of one we're, cosmic yes. being. Yes, you know, if, if we say the light has gone through a prism, mm -hmm. that, that, that little dots, points of light that are on the other side of the prism are our consciousness, our right. individual consciousness. But actually it's one light. So there are all these millions of individual perceivers, mm. but the consciousness that's seeing through them yeah. is one and seeing there's and only the, one agent. There's only yeah. one agent. Light that is one, though the lamps be many. Incredible string band. Yes. <laughs> yes. Good. Yes. I don't know how to answer your first question. You have to reiterate yeah. it again. You have to reiterate. The first question is you were talking about language as the, okay. right, as the method right. of, of manifestation. Yes, superficial understanding of that, you know, one would assume you're talking about human language, but humans weren't around yeah. for the first many, many billion yeah. years. Right. Yeah. Well, it's actually uh, not as complicated as it seems, or not, not as complicated as it seems in a, in a sense, that this very perspective, if we delve deeper into the perspective of these four progressively manifesting levels of sound from para to vaikari or well, let's say para here stands from the one you know beyond or beyond of the beyond right the ultimate to the level of where it is literally manifesting as something manifesting as sound which literally can be heard and sound that can be heard obviously is the form of that sound condensed as matter because everything in the universe, all forms, all forms, is just that. Very sound very condensed as matter. Sound, yeah. How it is essentially different frequencies. So even in terms of this granite, I hope it is granite, not a fake one. <laughs> even if this is an Indian granite, so we can imagine the structure, molecular atomic structure, is extremely dense. It is still a sound. It is still a sound condensed and having that hard appearance of matter. So if we take that stand view for a moment. And let, and let me just clarify something and let you continue. Ordinarily we think of sound as fluctuations in air pressure which our eardrums can pick up on and we interpret that no, as that's, sound. That's but but you're talking about not air as the medium obviously but uh, something much more fundamental. I'm talking about the fundamental as scientists would use that. Mm -hmm. In terms of like when Menes will come back, you know, we'll ask him to back it up because mm -hmm. this is precisely how scientists use the term sound. Mm -hmm. Sound is a frequency and everything is absolutely, everything is a frequency, just like everything is energy. For instance, the example uh, of the glass that you have started this discussion with, we could have also looked at it that yes, it's the conglomerate of molecules and atoms, but at the same time it still exhibits the property of energy. And this is why spiritual experiences sometimes melt, melt the so-called, in inverted commas, normal ordinary perception. The spiritual, the breakthrough, the breakthroughs are usually that. That reality which we perceive through five apertures, right, through the five sensory perceptions for which we are equipped with the organs of cognition, which is really the anatomy of the spirit and yogic and Vedic and tantric spirituality. I mean, the spirituality, let's say, that has evolved and has been transmitted on Indian subcontinent is very unapologetic about this. In other words, uh, we can see everything just as energy as well. 
but we do not perceive necessarily everything as energy until we do. So is in relation to our own, let's say, embodied individuality. This individuality that identifies with the body only perceive this as a matter. This is why we live in, in time now, this time that we live in, this, let's say, phase in, in our evolution. The reason why we run into such predicament with everything is because of that temporal eclipse and obje objectification to a degree where we perceive everything as just that, matter, you see? While at the same time forgetting that there's no such thing as matter. It's a degree, degree of the frequency with which frequency compacts itself into something particular. In Christian spirituality, for instance, right, in Christianity, this unknown as dragon, like the vortexes, what are they called? We have here Francis, maybe he can help you know us. You know Not that, like, um, uh, the vortexes... Like a whirlpool, what are you saying? Uh, where, the, where literally, where the energy itself, at the state of the collapse, to become something in particular. But I just don't want to uh, go away too much from the first question that you posed in terms of the language and these four progressive stages of sound. How come that when human beings, let's say, uh, were not around even, right? Or yeah. There is this also understanding that correlates these four progressive levels of sound with the epochs that we live in. The yugas? Yugas, different yugas. This, mm -hmm. And these are not to be understood in, in linear perspective for those who are not familiar with Vedic concept of time or tantric concept of time. It is concentric other than linear. So this concentric understanding of time is pro much more profound compared to, let's say, time in terms of yesterday, now, and tomorrow. It doesn't operate on, on uh, doesn't view reality in that way. It rather views reality in terms of manifestation of certain aspects of consciousness or in terms of the lacking of certain manifestation on manifested plane. In other words, when there is a loss, loss of information that what we know as different yugas, and we know that the golden age, for instance, was known for 100% of manifestation of all laws of nature that were even perceptible on the obvious plane of existence. And when there it By laws of nature, you mean devas and more refined? Different, different levels of subtle beings were perceptible in the... Exactly. Yeah, the in whole, words, the whole picture say, was open. We can even imagine, we can conclude even, that in that state, in time, there was no necessity for language. Because what for? You see, there was no separation. The language arises, and this is historically even, you can find the references that, that you know, like the Tower of Babel, or if you want to go to the, uh, the, the depth of the Vedic uh, you know, uh, mythology, and you can see that the rise of the language happens somewhere at the break point when, let's say, 50-50, when there's a 50% of laws manifesting on obvious plane, and 50% are simply lost. The Maya, let's say, the density of Maya is that much more. In, in so are you suggesting that everyone was just telepathic before that or something? No language? Why not? Everything is in that state. I'm not saying they weren't. I'm just saying, is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> so essentially, it's the, it's the time when perhaps the communication is not necessarily has to happen through this format. But as the diminishing takes place, 
And by the way, that's also linked to the Vedic concept of Dharma. Remember that, that the Dharma in the Golden Age stands on all four. Right. And then it starts losing its legs. Right. In Kali Yuga, Dharma stands on one mm -hmm. leg. This is why we all need to prop it. We're all literally holding it together. So we live in time when all this necessitates. You see, we have to have spiritual practice. We have to have religious revelations. We have to have language because otherwise we will simply constantly miscommunicate. And look what happens with the language. Even with the language we can sit together and talk. Look what happens around the world in the politics, in the economics. I'm agnostic about the yugas. And it's very interesting that traditional systems believe that this world is gradually, that, that, that what's happening is a kind of entropic situation where we started out very subtle and wise and then we become stupider and stupider. <laughs> Whereas, cyclically. Cyclically, right. Whereas, of course, the Western view is that, is that we are actually in a progressive situation evolving towards yeah. greater consciousness. I have no idea what is yeah. true. I do know that in looking at traditional systems, it's very important to kind of take what you can really feel internally and is true and not necessarily accept the aspects of it that are hard to swallow. Well, it has Acceptance to be packed up by personal experience. It has to be packed up by personal yeah, experience. Otherwise it will become very quickly a Yeah, ex exactly. Or and, and in those moments when you are in a state of very subtle experience, and for example, the insight that you're talking about may sort of display itself before you as a realization, then that's true for you. If it's not true for somebody else, then in a certain sense, it sounds as though you're asking, it, it's like that line in Alice in Wonderland, are you asking me to believe in imp yeah, like 24 impossible things yes, before breakfast? Jump with me. Yeah, mm -hmm. so in terms of what is it about Kashmir Shaivism that is, that is really helpful for us today. And I, I love this understanding and the experience of the subtle worlds, which is, you know, I think for all of us who've done this kind of practice, subtle world experiences are delightful and ecstatic. But to me, what's more important is that you actually can, can experience the pulsation of divineness, of non-dual sweetness, in your own body and in your emotions and in the table and in the interactions that will allow you to really understand that God is you, that God is in this, that, that everything is contained in, the, in this atom of our body because that's what allows us to evolve to the point that I think all the traditions are asking us to evolve to. And it, it does involve the thing about Shaivism and is that it, it really asks us to fully accept this manifest universe and our own thought streams and our own individual manifestation to take it as seriously as we take the realms of higher thought. Maybe this is kind of an invitation to introduce yeah. a little bit where Kashmir Shaivism itself comes from, sort of like that we yeah. Yeah. Uh, give it a little bit of a even historical platform so that we okay. can depart from it and perhaps go beyond the historical platform. Yeah, sure. I think it would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. What Sally just said is very important because it takes us back to the very core of why we sought to discuss this here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Let me give a little piece of it and then, why don't, then sure. you do it like Radio Lab, you know, where one yeah. person says something and somebody else does and so you're not listening to one person sort of droning on. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that I explain the Kashmir Shaiva worldview, you know, in the simplest way I know to explain it is to think of reality as a great, vast, self-recursive I-ness. 
you know, a consciousness, an, an agent who is non-dual, has no limits, is totally vast, and who is in this experience of, of I am. Self-interaction. Self-interaction, self-recursion, like constantly turning back on itself. And in, in Shaivism they say that this, this self-recursive oneness, this I amness, uh, has the quality of consciousness and bliss, awareness and bliss. And they give it the name Shiva for the awareness part and Shakti for the bliss part. And they say that inside the Shakti, the bliss of consciousness is powers of will, knowledge, and action. Minas was talking about it last night. In the process of manifesting universes within itself, the Shakti aspect of supreme consciousness actually creates all the multiverses within her own body, on her own screen out of perfect freedom as play. And that's the fundamental idea of Kashmir Shaivatantra. All of this is constantly being manifested in the great mind of consciousness, which in the Sanskrit is given a feminine form. So it's the feminine aspect, of, which is why I, I call my, <laughs> my workshops the feminine path. It's a so-called feminine, because of course we're beyond gender here aspect of consciousness that is making everything within itself and that uh, the idea in Shaivism is that that the ultimate is completely present. It's a holographic model. The ultimate is completely present in every atom of the universe. You know, just the way the, the holographic picture is, is present in every fragment of it. So that overall understanding, which I think is, that, which is the as above, so below, as here, so elsewhere recognition is then, there's then a very specific process of this ultimate reality manifesting through stages called tattvas, which means essence, you know, so that that very subtle vastness becomes more and more particular, uh, and that vast consciousness becomes an individual consciousness, and then, then a mind, an ego, and, and the physical world. But always with the understanding that the whole is in the atom, and the idea that the individual consciousness is as one of my friends calls it, baby-faced God. So <laughs> the whole process, the whole tradition is really there for showing us, and it does it very specifically, how your consciousness could be the same as the vastness. Of course it is and it isn't, but ultimately it is. Essentially it is. Essentially it is, and that it's a tradition that's really all about helping you get that. You know, it's a. It's a practice-based tradition. Mm -hmm. So whether or not the tattvas actually look like that, like they say in the charts, which were obviously seen in meditation by some sages, but... And the tattvas are? Tattvas are the stages of the manifestation of that consciousness into this consciousness and into this body. But the thing that Shaivism says that's so interesting is that creation is from the inside out. So in other words, their position is that the individual consciousness is, comes first, and then the world that's experienced. And that, of course, does not jive with the Western theory of evolution, or the belief that our, or the, the perhaps the truth, that this physical universe started with the Big Bang, and that, that human individuated consciousness came much later. So yeah, you just said the individual consciousness comes first, and then the creation. I would have said, Consciousness comes yes, first, consciousness and then creation, but, but individual consciousness. Well, in other words, what I understand Shaivism to mm -hmm. say is that, that the observer, the individual observer, mm -hmm. is prior to what is observed. In other words, this physical universe exists to be experienced 
by the conscious observer. There is a term, yeah. very succulent term, it's yeah. universal egoity. Universal egoity. Universal mm -hmm. egoity, which yeah. is unique, by the way, in, to Kashmir is unique yeah. because many people, when they misunderstand, understand that only uh, to certain measure, that creates a lot of perplexed, if not confused, ideas because what it really means is that essentially there is nothing but Shiva and the very mm -hmm. expositions, you know, Shiva here is a pure awareness and nothing but the absolute, there is nothing but that totality and not only that, a notion of universal goity which Sally was just very beautifully explained through like individual consciousness because it's always individual consciousness, it's always with one reference only even it if it's a universal it's individual. It yes. Because yes. Yes. it may have to be words, before there are exactly. any yes. you know, little words, biological Ka entities Ka around. Kashmishalism exactly. does not accept the notion of nothingness. It actually criticizes it. Every sage that came did its best to actually dismantle and show the weak side of the understanding of nothingness. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that ever since the arrival of the Kashmishalism on the stage as a unique system with its very, very concisely formulated doctrines, there was this understanding of the universal goity. And in fact, the, the term for Shiva is Anuttara. Mm -hmm. right? It's also like Anu is an atom, you know? So Anuttara is like an atom, you know, it has the same root. Anu stands for... The ultimate atom. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate Anuttara, atom, so yeah. the smallest yeah. of the small, in other words. Yeah. This is very important, it's like the very fabric of this consciousness, out of which everything is woven is Shiva. And there is another very supporting also sloka, which comes through some of the scriptures, is that even the bhumi, the earth, tatwa, the earth element, which is considered to be the manifestation of this world, the most grossest, isn't it? It's the, the densest element, is Shiva. Literally, it states that. In other words, it's a completely different perspective of appearance and consciousness, the Vedantic, right? The Advaitic Vedantic concept of this world is an appearance in consciousness. In Kashmir Shaivism instead, views this reality as reality itself, beholding itself through the multitude of form and phenomena for its own glory. In other words, it cannot help it but to admire itself. But in order to do that, it needs to be, literally, it needs to break to the infinitude of forms so that it can have as many angles as it can to behold its magnificence. So this is one of the central points in Kashmir Shaivism is that the universal egoity, in other words, there's no such thing as Rick, Salis, or Igor's, or anyone else's ego. There's no such thing as individual ego to start with. This is a very radical understanding, very radical understanding, this is on which Kashmir Shaivism operates, that there is only agency which is, there's only one agent, and that agent is pure awareness. Shiva, who exemplifies here that archetypal quality of masculine spirit, right? Erected spirit. But Shakti is Shiva in its form, in its form, as manifestation, as dynamic powers of Shiva. It's like that universal egoity is a very important aspect which aimed at showing through a very, very concise uh, discourses and expositions that there is no even such thing as to consider yourself to be somehow this limited individual. That limited individual doesn't even belong to the limited individual. That limited individual is Shiva in disguise. 
Yeah. That's the beauty of the Kashmir Shaivism. It's helpful to, to understand that, that there's a Shaiva paradigm which says that, that this consciousness, this absolute consciousness, exists at three levels with three different capacities for perception. So, so at the, the ultimate level, I-ness is the pure I am, Shiva Shakti, where there is no form, everything is within itself, everything is potential. There is absolute freedom of will, knowledge and action, total bliss, total perfection, total consciousness. Once there has been the refraction through Maya, once there has been the veiling, what remains is consciousness, which is pure awareness, but has it, it has lost its capacities. In other words, it no longer is all-powerful, no longer all-pervasive. It's a limited consciousness. It's, it's Rick's consciousness. It's the place you get to in, you know, in self-inquiry. When you, you know, when you go past the mind, you go through the mind, you go past the body, and you, you realize that you are pure consciousness. But it's a limited consciousness at that point because its powers have been taken from it by Maya. And then the third level is the level of I am hamkara, the ego level of consciousness where you're totally identified with your mind, your body, your personal history. And it's interesting to recognize that, that that pure consciousness as we mostly understand it in spiritual practice today is not the ultimate consciousness. The ultimate consciousness is, you know, has been freed from the veiling and is actually able to experience itself or herself or himself as all that is and, and beyond. So it's always an interesting question to ask yourself, okay, who is my I now? Is this my ego I identified with as Sally? Is this, is this the, the pure awareness that is free from the body, mind? Or am I actually experiencing myself as all that is at this moment? And what Shaivism says is that you cannot regard yourself as, as a true non-dualist if you're, if you're not actually experiencing this entire universe as a part of your your own being is a part of your own body. So it's a very, very, very expansive understanding of, of what the eye is. In other words, yeah. it also, also takes one back in the aspirant of consciousness to that necessarily separation where the self has to be separated from the non-self. Right. So that, the, you know, because it shares a lot with Vedic, With Vedanta. Vedanta. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of the, um, what is the primary uh, eye consciousness? Very practically, we experience it every day, but we don't pay attention to it. Um, it is the perfect eye uh, awareness, which at the so-called pure levels of Shaivism, and it's pure and impure, doesn't really have a connotation of good or bad. Now, we don't want to go that way. But more has to do with uh, unlimited versus limited, or unlimited, totally unlimited, then partially limited, and then totally limited. At the unlimited level, um, basically you can have uh, five levels of the I-ness. And the first two levels really are considered one. It's the Paramashiva and Parashakti, or the Supreme Self, that is not separate from the infinite powers that it has. And Shakti, Parashakti, or Chitti, as sometimes she's referred to. Uh, they are the same. It's really like a one coin, or a coin that has only one side. <laughs> We think of the coin, uh, we say, well, a coin is part of the coin, both sides. But actually, this magic coin has both sides are in one side. So there's really no difference between them. The I and that don't even exist yet in the mind of universal consciousness. But then there is a slight vibration, beginning vibration, 
which happens with the first um, and maybe the most fundamental power, uh, which is the power of uh, will, universal will. And then following the uh, universal will is the power, and I say then, of course, that again it's a linear thing, it's not linear at all. But let's say subsequent to that in the sense of um, emerging from it is the power of to know, jnana shakti. Uh, first one is called icha shakti. And then the third one is karma shakti, the ability to kriya. do... Kriya shakti. Uh, kriya shakti. The ability to do whatever universal consciousness um, wants to do and eventually becomes bound and kriya shakti becomes uh, karma or karma, karmic uh, consequences. But at that pure level, those five levels, you can consider them as four levels, you can consider them as three levels, it doesn't really matter, that's uh, so much numerology. But there's just one eye, eye awareness, and it, it's just the steering, this is again the, the idea of spandam, the steering of vibration, that the universe begins to manifest as an idea, but not an idea in the human sense, but a concept in a universal mind. And the first steering of that of that universal consciousness is the self-awareness. And that's where, in fact, then uh, referring to the two letters a little while ago of the Sanskrit alphabet, which eventually, of course, gets you down to the earth level. The steering of consciousness happens through these uh, three principles, or universal powers. Of course, the infinite has infinite powers, so, but for our ways of categorizing, we say it is the power to will something, is the power to know something, and then is the power to act on that something, or in relationship to that something. That something, in this particular case, eventually becomes a universe, or maybe becomes many universes. In fact, becomes probably infinite universes. But at first, the first steering is the self-awareness, the pure eye awareness, and then once you have that, then it's beginning of the division, but not happened yet, of that. So the I am that is Really, the I and that are the same at the beginning. In fact, there's no am. The am is a verb that we just add there to, to make sense of the English or some of the other languages. But it's really I and that are one. The aham and the idam are the same. And then there's a steering and there's a beginning to separate and you can do that with the circles. So the first level where the manifestation begins to take place, you have the I dominates. So really the level of uh, the willpower, it's the will, I can know everything, or I am about to project everything. And then in the subsequent level, that dominates. And that is, oh, okay, I know the universe is about to manifest, so I begin. And then at the Kriya level, the two are balanced together. And the I and the that are totally balanced. And then below that, and again, below and above are special ideas that don't really apply in a strict sense, but it is a way for us to convey what's going on. Then the great veiling power materializes, quote unquote, or becomes apparent and veils with the five cloaks. Uh, called Kanchukas, she veils the powers of the Lord. And it is the cosmic prism that then gives a rise to time, space, limits. Uh, so time gives, um, limits eternality, mm -hmm. space limits omnipresence, 
then you have limiting of the will. So as a human being, as Sally said, then we have a limited ability to do some things, but not everything. Limited ability to know some things, and that becomes an eventually becomes limited knowledge. And then limited ability to do things, which eventually gets us into karma, it gets into actions and reactions and consequences of our actions. I want to emphasize, if, I, if my understanding is correct, that you're not talking about this process of manifestation in some kind of chronological, historical no, sense exactly. of billions of years ago. You're talking about it happening continuously right it now. Happens from everywhere. Yeah. It happens in no time. And in fact, uh, they say the blink of the eye, but even the blink of the eye is a fraction of a second. There's yeah. no time, there's no space. It's just an ongoing bubbling up of creation from uh, through all those levels that you just described. Are we allowed to speak from direct experience? Because Why I not? Sometimes at sure. the Buddha, the gas pump, there's this. Uh, is he allowed to? Any rules here? No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, because this is the time that we have. <laughs> <laughs> Limited time. <laughs> just maybe to illustrate what Manus just beautifully elaborated on. And I did mention that in, in our first interview, towards the very end. That manifestation that, let's say, that the manifestation of Manas Shakti in its triadic form, or Shiva's triadic form, doesn't ma make any difference because, as you said, it's one at that stage, but as it breaks out into that which is known as simply as that will, knowledge, and action, is actually directly experientially experience and gives us the understanding that what traditions operates is not some kind of um, imagined symbols, uh, some kind of uh, symbols that simply are archetypally introduced to illustrate that uh, doctrine or that philosophy. It is actually experientially available. It is that triangle, that equilateral, which at first experienced as a breakthrough to which you simply perceive in yourself, out of which a tremendous amount of light pours out. So when you said that uh, when you were, um, in order for anything to appear, there has to be a will and the knowledge of how and the action to follow up with. Right. And I, I'm really uh, happy because you immediately added, but that does not happen in terms of sequence. Like it's not first, second. It literally happens all at once. And that was direct experience that I was relating at that interview is that you actually become that triangle, equilateral, pure equilateral, and then your consciousness literally withdrawn into that equilateral, then equilateral itself is losing, losing its space, and the universe from there on is simply press, proceeds upon from your own being. This is why the direct okay. realization of one's Shiva's, Shiva's nature is that universe is not created sustained and dissolved. It literally comes out of my own being. And at some point you even ask me, but you're not presupposing here that it's coming out of you as Igor, to which I was not able to reply to you because there was no such thing. <laughs> at that stage there was the dissolution takes take place fully. It first became that, this primordial energies, the energy of that will, knowledge and action. And then the withdrawal of, of these energies into pure consciousness itself, where the universe is literally being pouring out in billions of universes per fraction of a second. Of course, it's like uh, now it is being dressed into language, but when it was actually an ongoing experience, it was something which is very hard to convey because it goes beyond the uh, language simply becomes a limitation. But I thought 
to illustrate that because this is so that the, these philosophies, the, these doctrines, and these practices are not found on some kind of uh, rational understanding of reality, but it is experienced directly. And then, like uh, as all yogas, as all yogas, is the verification of the knowledge through direct experience, through direct partaking. So we had to move outside. We were taping the first part of this in the hotel bar, and the bar needs to open. So now we're out on the patio. But we have about 15 minutes in which we'd like to conclude this conversation. And I'd like to start these 15 minutes by asking a question that's similar to the one I asked in the beginning, but brings in a different element. And that is the element of intelligence. That is, that it does surprise me, that any scientist could be an atheist. Because science is looking at something that is so incredibly awe-inspiring and marvelous and there's such vast complexity within a single cell within you know a single molecule there are laws of nature that are so brilliantly functioning and coordinated with one another that it seems to me it's like God is staring them in the face and so I'd, I'd like to just sort of play a bit with what Kashmir Shaivism or, or all of us in general might have to say about the the divinity that seems to pervade everything and orchestrate everything well, let me just make a comment about scientists being atheists. Not all scientists are Oh, atheists. no, I didn't mean to say all were. Um, but they are minority. Well, maybe they're majority. What is the prevailing point of view among scientists? I have no idea, but certainly there's vocal minorities, let's put it that way, that they are the militant atheists um, yeah. who take it upon themselves to correct, you know, the wrong uh, thinking among um, the public and more or less acting like the all inquisition except they're not burning uh, people at stake they would like though to take away funding and uh, close down the parks. Um, you're right I mean uh, look the great uh, founders of quantum theory they all had this uh, profound uh, understanding of the divine and they talked about it maybe not in the Western uh, terms of God although quite often they would use that. Uh, Bohr made uh, the coat of arms for his family, uh, the yin and yang sign. And uh, of course, uh, Planck uh, said that uh, uh, science takes us to the edge of the ego and then leaves us there, and what's that? So they're all talking about the divine presence. I would say that what is going on many times with these um, atheist uh, ideas uh, is to try to preserve particular positions, funding, and maybe PR, and all of that, books, writing books, and all of that stuff. Uh, but indeed, if you dwell into the deep parts of reality, um, and science uh, is not really different from the great traditions, humanistic traditions. And when scientists say there's only one reality, well, after all, that's what Shaivism says. It's just, again, different different ways of expressing the same thing. So I agree with you, yeah. So what do you have to say about the, um, the intelligence that seems to be just um, saturating every iota of creation and, and, and uh, orchestrating its uh, function? I'd like to say one other thing about God, the God idea. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do believe that part of the problem is that modern people tend to associate God with what's sometimes called the mythic God. In other words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, or, or the, you know, Shiva with his dreadlocks and snake around his neck and it <laughs> and it's really important to understand that God is another name for reality right. or God is another name for cosmic intelligence and that in that sense it seems like there are more scientists who are not militant atheists yeah. than you would ordinarily think right. mm. um, but God is a hard word for, hard for modern people yeah it is it's like 
I often feel when I'm teaching that I have to get people's permission to say God. Yeah. You know, because, and so often we go, okay, so reality, the Tao, uh, absolute consciousness, you know, <laughs> right. whatever name you want to give it. The thing about tradition like Shaivism or Kabbalah, for example, which is so much like Shaivism in the Jewish mystical tradition, is that they exist within a traditional framework where, you know, where the, the story, the God story, is accepted by everybody. So people use it as a kind of a shorthand. Right. And my guru used to say, Shiva is not a Hindu deity. Shiva is this crystalline divine intelligence, right. this consciousness in, in, at the heart of everything. Right. And what I think is very beautiful is to, to realize the both and. In other words, yes, it's this divine intelligence. It's completely impersonal. It's inside everything. But it's also as personal as a subtle reality in form it, at that level of consciousness as it is in you and me, mm -hmm. you know, on a physical level yeah. of consciousness and that, that what the traditions let us do is hold those two perspectives. There is no God outside of me. There is no God outside of me. Yeah. Me and God are reunited in that realization affirmation. Speak a little louder. And there is no God outside of me and there is no me outside of God. Oh. Yeah. In other words, if someone wants to have that immediate sense of what God is or what God is not. Yeah, I guess another way of putting it is God is in everything and everything is in God. Is that a different statement? There is no God outside of me mm -hmm. and there is no me outside of God. Right. It's a kind of a double affirmation. Yeah. It, it leaves you nowhere but in God and leaves God nowhere but in you. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very comforting realization. Very comforting realization even now, even if it take, only takes place on that level of mental realization. It's still valid. Yeah. It is still valid. Because what it does, it creates this way, it creates this possibility that that what is the ultimate, what is indestructible because it simply doesn't uh, come into existence and doesn't come out of existence. It's existence itself. Existence flows out of that and being re-emerged back into that, which gives birth, which sustains and dissolves it all. And that is nowhere but in me. And that is also, also, that me is nowhere but in that. And the thing that's so subtle about it is, is to realize that when you say, I am that, or I am Shiva, that you're, you're, not, you're not talking about ego on the egoic level. Yeah, and yet you are. You know? So that's the subtlety that has to be realized, right? That, that, yeah, it's a devastating it's, realization. It's a de yes, you in other words, you, the, the ego does have to die in order to realize that, that you are that so Shaivism is often, and Tantra itself is often seen as, it, people often take it to sort of inflate the personal ego. Right. Because if you're saying, I am that, you know, often at a certain level you're going, mm. I am that. But it's not to inflate yourself. Yeah. And, and that, that's, what's, that's why it's a matter of realization. Uh, Christ said, yeah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Exactly. And I've gotten in trouble exactly. for that. And, uh, there was a Sufi saint, I forget his name, who said... Master Mastani. Is that the guy who was dismembered on the public square for saying, I am God, and he wouldn't stop saying it even as they were dismembering him? Sali just said, I want to go back to that because this is very important. It's tremendously important. 
because it's so subtle. Because the realization there is no me outside of the God. And there is no God outside of me. The realization, it's actually happened simultaneously on so many levels. And unless, unless it sacrifices immediately the separate existence of myself from the low case, then it's not real realization. Because this is what really, you know, the yeah. subtlety of that. In other words, when the aperture of that, whatever that focal point suddenly opens up, you realize that as an aperture you do not exist. You do not exist as this aperture outside of that which who you are. And that is what Kashmir Shaivism is so really, really succulent about. Yeah. It's the realization of the utter, utter magnanimity of your nature. But it's a devastating realization because it's always at the cost of the nihilation of that which you consider yourself to be. As the Kashmir Shaiva scriptures speak about that. And even that also followed by the realization that you have never been ignorant because that only belongs to the play or belongs to that contraction and expansion within the Shiva, within the heart of Shiva, Aspanda. So this is also a very humble realization very, very humble realization that there is no such thing, like neither prior to realization, no post-realization. So what, um, what perhaps, uh, Shaivism is a complete system, so we can't really add to it, um, and that's not, that's not really a purpose here. Um, in terms of making sense or bringing it to the, let's say, the quantum level, or to everyday life, some some ways perhaps can be added to the understanding some of these principles, generalized principles. And this principle of um, complementarity that we've been talking about, it's also highly misunderstood in scientific terms. It was proposed by Niels Bohr. And today, mostly, it's ignored because, say, well, it's just philosophy. It didn't really, doesn't really matter very much. But actually, it matters a lot. And it is one of the ways that universal consciousness manifests the universe at every level, from the very, very top, so-called top level, in terms of the opposites are not really opposites, but they're complementing each other. And that's why Bohr adopted the yin and yang symbol. The yin does not exist without the yang. You know, they are, they are together. They're intertwined. Yeah. So complementarity, recursion, which as here, so elsewhere, which is also in the Shiva Sutras. And the third one is the creative um, interactivity or sentience, which is really the Ananda part. It's the bliss of the self, which gives rise to everything because of this juxtaposition of the I and the that, which comes out of, comes out of the love, right? These three principles apply at every level. And they're very scientific. One has to contemplate them because Complementary again can be dismissed as well. You're just talking about opposites. No, it's not about opposites. It's about how the opposites merge into each other, but they're also separate in some ways from another point of view. So as you were saying, the individual and cosmic consciousness, they are the same, but not in the same, you know, they merge together, but not at the same time, they have a separate existence, depending on where you view it from. So in terms of going back to the word God, I, mm -hmm. I tend generally to also avoid it <laughs> because it comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. And nowadays, I have to tell you, uh, consciousness 
it's becoming a world with too much baggage. Yeah, really. <laughs> I thought that now beginning to say, forget that. Right. I'm now shifting more into awareness. Yeah. And, and actually, yeah. I prefer to use the, the Sanskrit terms for, yeah. for consciousness. There's so many beautiful terms. Why not use them, you yeah, know? Chiti, exactly. yeah. Shakti, yeah. Kundalini, you know, on and on and on. And they vibrate so the, And Spanda, you know, they're all of these different names of consciousness. Consciousness today has become, in a way, another word like God. And nobody knows what it means anyway. <laughs> Everyone That's has right. so many disagreements. Well, most of these disagreements are really about what it means. And, you yeah. know, the scientists and philosophers are arguing ad infinitum about consciousness. They're really talking past each other. They're yeah. not talking about the same thing. Mm. Can, I, can I just yeah. add, just to what Manus very beautifully now expanded upon that, the polarities, yeah. that they're not the opposites, yes, that right. one contains in the other, and one cannot exist without the other. Shiva is as good as dead, right. as the tantric right. tradition goes, you know, unless he is accompanied by Shakti as his own manifestation, as everything, right. as energy, as the world, and so on. So in terms of our personal experience, upon the realization and upon the integ integrative phases, which are necessarily accompany this process, when we necessarily return to that consciousness, which is the mundane, so to speak, consciousness of our reality, to deal and interact, right? Because we cannot be in Shiva's consciousness all the time. You know, this, this body will simply not exist, and the Kashmishai scriptures are quite unapologetic about that. So we have to go back, it's because that within that is a mercy of Shiva itself upon that form. But we return with a very qualitatively different realization. So in other words, our individuality that becomes sacred because it, being, it went through that sacral act of realizing who we are in essence. And then there's the second aha realization that ah, even that individuality also is very sacred. That individuality becomes sacred because it's the another form of Shiva. It's an aspect of Shiva in its contracted state as something that can behold Shiva through that multitude of, let's say, expressions. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I actually wanted to add one more piece before. Yeah, I'd like you to speak last, because these two have just said a bunch of stuff, so why don't you make some concluding remarks? I actually was going to talk about the factor in Kashmir Shaivism that is so incredibly significant as, as an aspect of our own spiritual capacity, which is the understanding that because Shakti has veiled everything, Shakti has to remove the veil. So in other words, it is literally impossible as an individual to realize the truth no matter, no matter how much effort we make, no matter how smart we are, no matter how much practice we do. We can only take ourselves up to a certain point. And beyond that, it is really the will of Shakti, the will of Shiva that, that gives us the capacity to see through the veil. And that's the thing, that's the ineluctable reality that makes it so difficult for the modern non-devotional mind to get. Because normally the way that that unveiling happens is, is through the arousing of a kind of combination of love and knowledge. And the love is very much a part of it. In other words, the, the experience of having the veil removed is an experience of kind of opening up to the vulnerable, love-saturated, shakti-infused quality of grace in the individual's life. 
without that, you know, knowledge is just knowledge. It doesn't move you through the veil. It drives you. Yeah. Even you know, and even even your realization without mm. that aspect doesn't transform you ultimately. And I think that in the understanding of non-duality, which all of us have found such a profound basis for conversation and community, it's really very important to understand that non-duality is just a concept without grace, without mm. that gift of connectedness between the individual and the divine, both within and without. So I just wanted to close with a salutation to Shakti, who veils and reveals to the power of the five powers of the divine, which include concealment, that is the absolute hiding of the face of the divine, and the revelation of, of its presence, which hopefully is really the outcome of this conference and this conversation for all of us. Beautiful. Thank you. And I'll make my concluding remarks much shorter than usual. Thank you all for participating in this. And those who have made it this far through the conversation, please go to batgap.com and enjoy. <laughs>